it, it took me about 15 years, Debbie, to realize that I could actually succeed in life and meet my life goals, this desire to have total freedom and control of my time through real estate. I just had to change my identity. This is Debbie, and welcome to another episode of The Offbeat Life, where I speak to inspiring individuals who ditched the norm to become location independent. We'll learn how to create sustainable laptop lifestyles from the experts that will help us achieve freedom from our nine to five. Hey friend, are you looking to land a remote gig ASAP? Well, did you know that we not only have a ton of online jobs you can apply to on our site, but now we are also sending them straight to your inbox. I'm happy to announce that we will be sending our email subscribers legit online jobs every Wednesday. We have done hours of research so you don't have to. If you want to be the first one to hear about the remote gigs we find, go to theoffbeatlife.com to subscribe. On this episode, I speak with Whitney, who is a remote real estate investor generating multiple streams of passive income from her active portfolio. She discovered the power of real estate in 2002 when she became an accidental landlord and turned what could have been a failed investment into $52,000 worth of profits in 11 months. So listen on to find out how Whitney successfully created passive income from real estate investments. Hey everyone, thank you so much for being here. I'm super, super excited for my guest today. I'm here with Whitney. Hey Whitney, how are you? I'm doing great, Debbie. Thank you so much for having me on. Thank you. Can you tell us about you and why you live an offbeat life? Well, I am a real estate investor and you know, I, I would say for myself and my family, we have a very non-traditional way of living life. We've broken the, I guess, the golden handcuffs of the corporate world and you know, we kind of live life on our own terms and I would love to share that story. That's exactly why we're here today. <laughs> <laughs> Me too. So for you, were you always a real estate investor? How did that start? How did this journey start for you? You know, actually, no. Um, real estate was never on my path. I actually, you know, started off in, I guess, if we go back to my humble beginnings of, you know, uh, employment, I grew up wanting to be a doctor. And, you know, I went to college, followed the traditional narrative, I guess, you know, go to college, get a good job. Um, in college, I focused on med school. So I did two years of med school. Really knew at that point in time when I entered med school that my passion was in public health. So I graduated switched gears and um, instead of finishing up med school, went to grad school and finished up uh, in public health and epidemiology and worked for, you know, government agencies for a few years. And, you know, I think at that point in time is when, you know, things started to kind of diverge for me. Here I was following what, you know, was, I had trained myself to be my passion at my heart, but my parents actually fell on very hard times. My dad fell ill. He had Parkinson's and some other complicating factors. He fell and shattered his leg in the shower. And I mean, this is a story that honestly, Debbie, I don't think I've ever told <laughs> live on air. Um, but when, um, when that happened, here I was, it was right after 9-11. I was working for the CDC in bioterrorism and, you know, 80 plus hours a week, you know, not unlike what's happening today during the COVID pandemic. Bless these public health workers right now. And, you know, my dad had had this devastating, not only illness, but accident. And I had to ask for time off to be with my family. And it just like, at that point in time, it just kind of blew my mind that our system, our employment system just wasn't set up 
to really support people to be with their families in their time of need. I didn't know what life looked like, where I was going to take this and where I was going to go. But I just knew at that point in time, things had to change. This was not how I wanted to live my life. This is not if I chose to marry and have a family, that was not how I wanted to cultivate that relationship with my family, you know, just having to choose between employment or being at home with them. That's really kind of where the, you know, the, the journey really starts was at that inflection point. <laughs> and from that, when you finally took that time off to be with your family, which I think a lot of us who start working remotely or want to become location independent, that's one of the biggest things that we want to have, right, is to have freedom to either live anywhere, to travel, but also to be with your family. And you mentioned this, you know, your father wasn't feeling well, you wanted to start a family someday, and you needed some freedom to be able to do this. How did you go from working that corporate job to getting into real estate investment? Because that is, you know, I mean, it's not two polar polar opposites, but it's also not something that you had done before. How did you get into that process? Well, yeah. So at, the, at this point in time, when, uh, and this is the story that most people do hear me tell, is I had actually bought a house. And when I bought the house, I had bought it with a significant other. And um, the relationship fell apart very quickly after we, we closed on the house. And here I was, le- you know, left kind of holding the bag. I had the bills. It was also a house that was in dire need of a rehab. I knew how to change the tire on my car. That was about it. That was how handy I was. And so I stuffed the house full of roommates, went and bought, um, you know, the Home Depot 123 book because YouTube wasn't around. I couldn't go on YouTube and try to figure out how to repair things, you know, from watching videos. And so, uh, you know, I, I really tried to figure out how to do majority of this work myself to keep the, the expenses down. Fast forward 11 months later, I sold that house, which probably was my number one investing mistake. But we'll leave that. We'll set that aside for right now. But I realized at that time that I hadn't been paying for my housing bill the entire time. In fact, I'd actually probably been putting away about $300 a month in my pocket. And I walked away with $52,000 at the closing table when I sold that house. And so that for me, the light bulb came on. I was like, oh man, I can actually make money in real estate. And I didn't have to go to college to get a degree for it. I could do this on the side. I didn't have to get a a certificate or anything like that. You know, it was just all about hard work and ingenuity. Now, you know, not all investments went very smoothly, you know, after that. Like even at that point in time, Debbie, like I hadn't actually put two and two together that I wanted to be a real estate investor because I really feel like life is an iceberg, right? When you see somebody and where they are in their success at that point in your life, in their life, you may think they're an overnight success, but what you're actually seeing is the culmination of the journey that they've had up until that point. Even after having the success with this initial investment, I was still trying to find a quote unquote job or build a business on the side for myself because I had convinced myself I need to be in the healthcare sector. That was my identity. It was very much tied to my identity. I had tried health coaching on the side. I was doing freelance medical research writing. I even tried to do a time management coaching business. I went back and completed my doctorate and started a wellness and personal training business, which that would, you know, had a level of success. And I eventually sold that because starting a business from scratch is so hard. And I'm sure most people here can really identify with that. On the side, the whole entire time, I am buying houses, fixing them up and flipping them and continuing to repeat this model that I had with this first house. 
it, it took me about 15 years, Debbie, to realize that I could actually succeed in life and meet my life goals, this desire to have total freedom and control of my time through real estate. I just had to change my identity. That is amazing. And also the fact that a lot of people, when they think of real estate, they don't think that you can have that freedom, right? And you can't do it remotely, but you have been able to do this for a really long time and have the freedom that you always wanted to do. And it's so funny how life and the universe gives us something that we actually want and need and we just don't see it. We don't see it even when it's right in front of us. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> I felt like it was beating me over the head until about 2016. And that's when I was like, oh, the big head slap, right? Oh, this is what I need to be doing right now. Again, we talk about you know how my identity was really tied up in healthcare. I felt like that was the only way that I could really create an impact in the world. Well, it turns out Life had another plan for me, and I just needed to get to the point where I could listen to that plan. I love that. So for you, Whitney, how did you replicate that first accidental investment that you actually did with real estate, with buying houses and flipping them? How did you do this over and over again and make it successful? Well, so with that first house, again, totally by accident. I learned a lot of things along the way. And part of this was learning how to utilize the tax code to my favor. When I sold that house that first year, that $52,000 that I made was tax-free money. So well, let's discuss how it came tax-free. Well, there is a tax part of the tax code called the 121 exclusion. And I think most people who own their primary probably are familiar with this, that they can actually buy a property, create value on that property, and they can sell the property and $250,000 of that gain is tax-free as an individual or $500,000 if you're married, finally and jointly. Once I was kind of able to put two and two together, you know, on how I could leverage the tax code and reduce my number one expense, which is my taxes, that's when I was just like, you know what? Most people don't know how to do this. As we continued to build and scale our portfolio and flip these houses, I thought I had to live in them. So eventually, my husband and I needed to pivot and do more houses because at this point in time, we felt like we had to flip in order to find this financial independence, meaning that we weren't always living in the houses to do this. So we couldn't use that 121 tax code. We had to figure out how to structure our business in a different way so we could leverage the tax code to keep all of our profits tax-free. And that's the beauty of real estate. You know, even when you switch from being the, you know, the home being your primary investment or primary owner of the house, the IRS does want to partner with you and provide you with tax benefits to continue to invest in real estate, even if you're holding it as, say, like a, a private landlord. Oh, a lot of that was just about educating ourselves. And, you know, that, as I mentioned, that crash course in education actually wasn't a crash course. It, it took several years for us to truly understand that. And we actually moved away from flipping in 2016 into buy and hold real estate so we could generate income, rental income on the asset, have the tenants pay down the loan for us, and utilize the IRS tax code for depreciation and bonus depreciation to keep any of the profits on that income tax-free. Now, what the IRS giveth, they take it, take it away. So if you go sell that house as a landlord, you actually have to pay recapture on that taxes because 
you know, whereas you're a private owner, you're going to go buy another house more than likely. But as a landlord, you may just harvest the equity and go buy, I don't know, a boat or invest in a trip around the world or something like that. Here, the IRS wants you as the private investor to continue to scale up and invest in real estate. So they give it, they give you a couple other opportunities, like through a 1031 exchange, to continue to forego that depreciation recapture. This might be a little bit high level for the people here and uh, listening to the pod, but once you really kind of educate yourself on how you can leverage different parts of the tax code and incorporate them into your business, you can really significantly reduce your number one liability when it comes to building the business, which is your taxes. And that goes for whether you are a passive real estate investor, an active real estate investor, or even just a business owner. I love that. And I'm also very interested in this. This is actually what my fiance and I want to do. So I'm like, so Whitney, give us all the information. (laughs) Oh, sure. Okay. What do we want to know? Yeah. Right. I'm like, yes. Okay. So the next thing I want to know from you, Whitney, do you all just market in the same area or do you go to different states? How do you find the right places to actually invest in? Great question. So we actually started investing in our backyard. And for I think most people that get into real estate, they probably initially look at their backyard, right? They know it, they love it, they understand the market, it's familiar to them, maybe they already own a property in that market. Now, just because now that doesn't mean that your backyard is actually the right place to invest. And I, I think, you know, and I'm going to step back from just a little bit, you have to understand what your goals are. Why are you investing in real estate? Do you need the cash flow? Do you need to create buckets of wealth to increase your net worth? Or do you need a balanced blend of both? Because even just being able to answer that question right there is going to help you determine where you should be investing. Example, you know, if you're desiring cash flow, probably investing in, you know, say San Francisco, California, or Seattle, Washington, or New York City, you're not going to get it, right? The asset prices are too high and the rents don't continue to grow at the same pace as the asset value grows. Now, turn those tables, you invest in a Midwest property, maybe you can pick up a property for say $100,000 or $150,000, and the rents on that property are probably $1,000 to $1,200 a month. Now you're walking away with three dollars to $400 in your pocket every single month. But that asset price, you know, that $100,000 to $150,000 isn't going to grow as quickly as it would say on the coastal markets. Now, for me, I am a very conservative investor. I want cash flow because cash flow for me is king. If I have cash flow coming in on a property, the markets go up, down, or sideways a little bit, I, it doesn't matter. I don't have to sell the property. I'm very much insulated. Whereas if I have to break even on a property or even put in a little bit of money on a property, and I'm waiting for you know, 10, 15, 20 years for that asset to grow in value before I sell it, now I'm at the mercy of the market and what happens. Right now, we're very blessed that asset prices haven't faltered. And, you know, honestly, like in the last five recessions, only three recessions, asset prices went up. One, they stayed basically neutral. And then we all know what happened in 2008, asset prices yeah. tanked. So how do you know? Like, how do you know where to invest? So I would first take a look at your backyard. You know, maybe your backyard is a good place to invest. Can you find an affordable property that actually cash flows on rents after all your expenses, principal, interest, taxes, insurance, HOA? Those are your hard expenses. And setting aside reserves. And this is where most investors kind of mess up at the beginning. They fudge the numbers. 
they're like, oh, my property will never be vacant because it's such a strong rental market. So I'm not going to set any aside for anything aside for vacancy. Or, you know, it's in complete repair. I'm not going to set any aside for CapEx or maintenance. Well, guess what? Things happen. <laughs> Properties go vacant. At some point in time, that roof is going to age. You're going to have to replace it. And tenants can do damage, some pretty extensive damage to properties. And so you do need to be able to set aside reserves. That is the challenge, is being able to find property in your, in your area that meets those qualifications. If they don't, then how do you set that system up out of state? Well, pretty much exactly like how you would you know, do it in your local market. My husband and I, we fell in that trap. Uh, initially, we were like, we have to invest in Colorado because there's not a good quality house outside of Colorado. The most absurd, absurd th- thought we could possibly have. Um, <laughs> and it's funny, a lot of people share that, you know, too, about their own market. But, you know, we, we bought a house here in Colorado, um, one of our first rentals, we bought it for $335,000. And it rented for about $2,100 a month. Not horrible numbers, but we were, you know, our initial down payment was $80,000 on that property. And we were probably making about $400 a month, but we weren't setting aside those reserves. And so the toilet broke the first month. We made no cash flow because we had to fix the toilet and the plumbing. The next month, the fence broke. We made no money that month because we had to do some repairs on the fencing. And that's when I was like, oh, this is painful. I don't think I did this the right way. Like, how are people <laughs> retiring? And I really started, you know, educating myself on the, the financial metrics of holding rentals. Because up until this time, we had just flipped houses, flipped properties. And when I started educating myself, I, I mean, I had to kind of hang my head low. And I went back to my husband. I'm like, I think we goofed. <laughs> <laughs> we, we've invested $80,000 in this one property and we're making $400 a month and we haven't cleared any money for two months. And I finally figured out how to ca- calculate cash flow and it's, it's 0.3%. My husband was like, what? Like, we're never going to reach financial independence that way. And I'm like, yeah, I know. I think we need to switch tactics. <laughs> <laughs> But here's the thing about real estate. It can be pretty forgiving. We did a lot of things right when we purchased that first full-on rental property. We weren't upside down on anything. We were breaking even. We could hold on to the asset for a while. We had good reserves behind us, but we had messed up understanding that first fundamental question, which is what do we really need? We need cash flow. So when you're talking about that, Whitney, right, I know a lot of people who are listening to this who are not familiar with real estate investing are probably like, oh, my God, that's way above my head right now. (laughs) Um, But, you know, one of the things that you're talking about is investing in your own backyard. You know, I live in New York City and it's absolutely ridiculous here. Like there's nothing here you can buy. And you mentioned this and you're definitely not going to get any cash flow here. So now when you actually go into other markets, you talked about the Midwest being a good one for cash flow. How do you know? how to invest in those areas. Because first of all, if you don't live there, you don't know anyone, how do you actually tap into those markets without knowing any information or even about the location? You have to do research. And this is, it's kind of a heavy lift. But if you think about it, let's talk about Whole Foods. Does Whole Foods randomly open a market on just any street corner? 
No, they do a ton of market research to understand what's happening with the population, what's happening with jobs, what's the income of the area, what's the education of the area, right? You're going to go through a similar process with setting, you know, if you're going to invest out of state with setting up your out of state markets. I love investing in growth markets, both actively and passively. So it's, this is the same process I would go through no matter if I were doing single family, multifamily, self-storage, if I was going to actively flip or if I was going to do a you know, more passive strategy like buying off of the MLS turnkey or a syndication. I would look for markets where the population is growing, incomes are growing, jobs are growing, Jobs are diversified. I think if anything that, that COVID's taught us, is, you know, as far as a real estate perspective, you need to be in markets where there's not a large market share going to any employer. You know, hospitality took a huge hit this year. Travel industry took a huge hit this year. Those are the markets where asset prices are kind of faltering a little bit right now. But I would look for those. I would also look, you know, again, this is a business, right? We already talked about taxes being your number one expense in business. So look for markets where taxes are favorable, okay? They're pro-business, but also they're lower to the investor. You also want to, you know, who's the employee of your real estate asset? It's the tenant. So you want to have a good quality tenant base to rent to. And you want to understand the landlord-tenant laws of that area. And you want to be in areas where you have control on how you manage the asset. Okay, so I like looking for areas that are landlord friendly, not so I can kick somebody out of the house. That's not it. I want to look for areas that are landlord friendly so I can maintain control over the physical asset of the property and determine how I want to run it. Now, you can put all that data in a spreadsheet, okay, and kind of look for where all of those, you know, areas converge. A couple other things you might want to look for crime, poverty, and vacancy all stable and coming down. Those are three other kind of social economic uh, you know, variables that I would look at. Now, where do you get all this data? Remember, my background's in epidemiology. I love data. You know, <laughs> kind of a data geek. Like I can go on census.gov and pull down data and play around with it and I'm in heaven. But most people aren't. Most people I most people I coach, whenever they go on and they, you know, I ask them to go through this exercise, they're like, their eyes just glaze over. You can buy data sets. <laughs> They're like, you want me to do what? I'm like, I don't want you to become a data entry expert or a data analysis expert, but I need you to look at the data and make an educated decision. I need you to become a decision maker. So there's uh, websites out there, citydata.com, uh, niche.com, N-I-C-H-E.com. They have some pretty graphics that will help you with this. You can also buy data sets as well. They're really nice data sets. They'll have all, they'll, they'll, kind of scrape the census data tables and, you know, compile it in kind of an easy digestible data set. So that, that would be where I'd start, you know, let's narrow down the markets, maybe to like three to five areas that interest you and maybe where you have a competitive advantage, right? Maybe you used to live there or you went to school there or you have family that lives there or you travel there for business. So you understand some fundamentals about the market. And then once you understand that, you're kind of narrowing down the parts of the United States. Now we're going to try to find the locales around those areas. So we call them submarkets. So in Denver, there's the Denver metro area. There's Boulder, Westminster, Arvada, Commerce City. Like some areas you want to be in, some areas you don't. That's kind of like the same with, I'm sure you could probably say the same for, you know, New York City. 
you're going to try to identify the the markets and, and repeat a similar analysis. Like, are people moving there? Does it have a high enough income? What's the poverty level of the area? Are the jobs diversified? Once you get that, now we're going to start looking at houses in that area. And this is where I think it, you start building your team in a few different ways. One, when you look at the houses that have been sold in the area or houses that are being rented of the product that you want, right? Multifamily, single family, maybe you're in self-storage, maybe we're not even talking about houses at all. You can actually start gleaning, scraping data and seeing who are the realtors, who are the property managers on these listings. And names are going to continue to repeat. And so you can kind of back in to finding these rock stars in the market. Now, of course, there's always just like going to other investors in the market and going, hey, who's your team? Would you introduce them to me? Sometimes that works. Sometimes that doesn't. It depends on how competitive the market is. So that's a few other ways to kind of back into, you know, starting to put together a team. I think for me, the realization happened. I put together a team in my Colorado market and I just repeated almost the exact same process when I went out of state. It's just now I'm holding the calls you know, virtually, as opposed to being there in person with them. I love that. And I like the fact that you're able to do this from anywhere, you know, and you can literally be anywhere in the world and still be able to invest in your properties, which now you have so much more freedom because of it. So that's incredible. Mm -hmm. Yeah, we've we've traveled out of the out of the country and rents come in. And I place all my properties with property management. So I have a day-to-day operator overseeing the key decisions that are happening on the property. And so, yeah, you know, it's really true time freedom. It's amazing. Love that. So for you, Whitney, when you first started this, you invested in it, you got some money from it, and then you kept building it up. But for somebody who's just starting out, how much money do you actually need in order to get started Well, that's going to vary depending on what you're investing in, your strategy, and the market you're going to be in. So I kind of a a basic number that I throw out to people is about $50,000 to get started. Now, it doesn't have to be your own money. We can kind of put a pin in that and set it aside. Maybe you can you have lines of credit or you have friends and family that will help you invest in your business to get you going and off the ground. Let's talk it kind of break down what that fifty thousand would cover. Initially, it would cover the down payment on the property. You know, so if we're investing in, say, in a Midwest market in a house that's hundred thousand dollars, let's assume that we're just buying the property outright and we're not doing any sort of kind of creative rehab strategy on it to pull our money out. So you need about twenty five thousand dollars between down payment and closing cost. Then the bank's going to have you at you know ask you to set aside about six months of reserves. Okay, on that property, they want to see principal interest, taxes, insurance, maybe even your HOA if you have one on the property set aside, you know, in a reserve account. Now, here's the cool thing, you can use the exact same set of reserves for multiple properties. So it's not like you have to have each of these reserves set aside for individual properties. That's to qualify for lending. I do suggest you continue to set aside reserves for each property to, you know, financially insulate your business. But this is just to get your business off the ground. Then I also want you to think about your financial moat. And this doesn't matter. It doesn't matter if you're investing in real estate or have another business that you're building. What is your financial moat? 
could you go without any income coming in on your properties or in your business for three to six months minimum? So you have to really understand what your personal finances are and get that built up. Okay. I personally like having 12 months of all of my expenses set aside, including my health deductible, car deductible, and house deductible. To me, I just sleep extremely well at night when I have all that set aside. It might be a little bit of overkill. You know, again, I'm a very conservative investor and, you know, that, that strategy has really served me well. I love that. So now for you, Whitney, what has been the best markets that you have invested in and why? I get asked this question all the time. And when I, you know, people are like, well, what, what market should I invest in? That's usually a question I get asked. And I'm like, well, it depends, right? It all depends on what your investment strategy is. Again, going back to that core question, do you need cash flow appreciation or a balanced blend of both? What kind of asset prices are you willing to pay for? Okay. And then, you know, what's the trajectory of that market? It really all depends. Now, for me, I started off investing in Colorado. We all know we we picked that story apart. We know it didn't really work (laughs) out for me because it wasn't aligned with my goals. But for somebody else who wanted just appreciation, Colorado is a fine market. It's a great market to be in. But I needed cash flow. I had a child at home. I was burning the candle at both ends and five times in the middle trying to take care of family members. And I knew my job at that point in time when I was still working in public health had probably some sort of expiration date on it. Okay. And so I started off in Indianapolis at the time that I started investing out of state. We knew Indianapolis, it was uh, solid fundamentally. And we had a competitive advantage there because we had some friends and family that lived in the area. So we started off there and then kind of the same thing. I had some friends that were very familiar with the Kansas City market. I went to school in the Midwest, so I understood, you know, the fundamentals of that market as well. So we started off in those two markets. I'm still pretty heavily invested in the Kansas City market from a single family, small multifamily perspective, but I've really expanded my portfolio getting into more uh, passive and active strategies and syndication. So investing in larger multifamily deals. And so I currently now on on the multifamily side invested in Dallas-Fort Worth area, Orlando, Jacksonville, Greenville, South Carolina, Raleigh-Durham, and then also Charlotte. Wow. Amazing. And this is from obviously, you know, with Whitney, she's been doing this for so many years and she just knows what to do. She made it work. And she did a lot of research, obviously. So this is incredible, Whitney. And you have definitely been giving us so much information, some of us that we need and some of us we didn't even think we needed. So amazing. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, so, but here's the thing, right? So real estate is truly accessible. I can totally see somebody, if you guys are still hanging here listening to me, there might be, you know, mind boggling going, glazed over going, oh my gosh, she said real estate was accessible. (laughs) To me, as an investor, as a side hustle, she's smoking hopium. Like what is going on here? This does not apply to me. I can totally, I can, I can, you know, can totally see that happening for people. Yet it is. And I'm going to tell you how. Okay. There is a wonderful investment strategy called a syndication. It is not for everybody. 
However, if you have a higher and best use of your time, this is super, super, especially like if you're a high income earner or in your job or in your business, more importantly, you know, for the people here, if you're making a big income in your business and you need actually more tax deductions or you want to build more a, a core foundation and more passive income so that allows you to step away from your business a little bit. I would highly suggest looking at syndications. You know, they come in all different flavors, multifamily, self-storage, residential assisted living, commercial retail even. I, that's not a space that I'm currently focused on right now, mobile home parks, stuff like that. And, you know, that's where, you know, my partners, um, Annie and Julie at uh, Good Ag Investments, that's where we help people tap into these, these different types of investment strategies so they can actually focus on building passive income from themselves building their portfolio wealth so they can continue to focus on the things, you know, you know, be it their family, traveling or building their own passionate business and creating an impact in the world. Thank you so much for that, Whitney. You have been so incredible. So for you, Whitney, we're going to fast forward to around 30 to 40 years from now, and you're looking back at your life. What legacy do you want to leave and what do you want to be remembered for? Yeah, great question. So that is something that I am, you know, that's where I am in my career right now is trying to understand what exactly that impact is that I want to create in the world. And for me, I'm so focused on still a, a big, huge public health issue that we have today. You know, I kind of mentioned this before, but like our, my journey has not been linear. And here I am sitting here in the middle of the financial crisis, in the middle of the COVID pandemic going, wow, what there's a hole here i need to fill this hole what is it and for me i've really landed on it. it's focusing on creating you know helping people and educating people on how to create financial wealth for themselves i really feel that this is a huge public health issue and for me <laughs> you know coming from the health background i never thought i would be on the financial side of this issue but how can people you know how can we flip this narrative that you have to go to school get a good job marry, buy a house before you can, and then work for 40 years, scrape by for 40 years before you actually get to own your time. That is what I want to blow apart for people is how can you actually start here right now building financial wealth for yourself, passive cash flow, so you can unlock these golden handcuffs and do what it is that you were meant to do in the world. That is the impact that I want to create. I love that. And it's something that is definitely doable if you are able to see that, you know, and not wait until you're retired to to think about that. And I think that's a lot of our mistakes when we're young. We don't think about these things, right? It's like we don't have that type of environment. Maybe our parents or family never did that. So it's so good to find that for yourself, even if you didn't have that. I think you place. hit the nail right on the head, Debbie. I mean, it's <laughs> it's a lack of financial education. Yeah. And, you know, where does that come from? I mean, it's easy for, you know, parents to blame the schools, but, you know, it, that's, that's also part of the parents' responsibility at home. Now, I'm not throwing parents under the bus, <laughs> not doing that at all, because I know I did not grow up with that financial education. I had two very brilliant, smart, hardworking parents. And I didn't know how to, do, I, I didn't even know how to balance my checkbook until I got to college. <laughs> like, <laughs> I, I didn't, I couldn't even define what an asset was. My daughter, she's eight. She, she knew when she was four, she knew the difference between an asset and liability. 
Very oh simple God. definition. <laughs> Asset put money, puts money in your pocket. A liability takes money out. That's it. We don't have any arguments if we walk into Target. She's not like trying to like, you know, get me to buy every toy in there. I just, I'm like, is it an asset or a liability? Now, granted, she's, she's a kid. I'm still, we're still like getting my char child toys. But, you know, even just that basic education. So I think that's one. Like, how can you start introducing this vocabulary in the household at a much earlier age and talking about money not taboo? Because money is energy. Yes. I love that, Whitney. Because that's the thing. I think so many people are afraid to talk about money. Like you're saying, it's taboo. No, we can't talk about this. It's not polite to talk about that in front of other people. I'm like, yeah, and you know who talks about that? People who have money and kids who will have money because when we don't talk about it, it doesn't grow. So yeah, then we be call- we all become confused and be broke when we're adults. Exactly. And then I think the second piece to this education is understanding, you know, what Robert Kiyosaki calls the cash flow quadrant. Like, how do you make your money? And it's very important to understand how you're going to make your money because that how you make your money will impact how you get taxed on it. Right? You know, the middle America right now in not getting political staying away from politics, but they're, they want tax breaks right now. They may, but yeah. most of middle America makes their money through employment. That is, uh, honestly, employment is not the highest tax bracket as far as taxes in the United States. It is the second highest tax bracket. The highest tax bracket are self-employed people. Yeah. So if you're on the, what we call the left side of the quadrant, employed and self-employed people, that's how you earn your money there are, there's a different tax code for you. How can you now shift to being on the other side, the right side, where, you, you know, as a business owner or an investor in an operating business, now the, how you make your money on that side, you're going to be able to reorganize it and really significantly reduce your taxes. Now, you know, the tax code right now as it's set up is just, it's a series of incentives by the IRS to tell you where they want you investing in the capital markets. So how can you leverage that? If you want to pay lower taxes, figure out how to leverage that for you. Yeah, there's so many things that you can learn and it's not readily available. So you really have to be educated in that and educate yourself because, you know, this is not taught in school for the most part. So it's like, you either figure it out yourself, find a mentor, or you just don't know about it. And exactly. today, Whitney definitely educated us on that. So thank you, Whitney. <laughs> <laughs> well, so like, how can we, again, you know, you know, for people who are like, minds are boggled and they're like, oh my gosh, I don't even know what the first step is. Let's kind of, I love leaving people with, first, you know, in actionable steps. One, start educating yourself. You can listen to podcasts, read books, go to the web, right? But you want to have good quality resources. So um, for me, I usually direct people to, especially if you're interested in real estate, I think the Purple Bible, as we all kind of joke around in the real estate world, um, Rich Dad, Poor Dad is a great first book. This follow-up book to that is Cashflow Quadrant. And you know, if you're just like, I don't, I don't care about real estate, at least read Cashflow Quadrant because then you'll get an understanding of just how, you know, the way you make your money will impact everything else that you can do in your life. I think that's a good first step and a first primer. Then, you know, if you want to kind of dive in deeper and you want to shortcut your path to success, you know, teaming up with a good mentor will help you do that. 
Absolutely. Well, thank you so much, Whitney, for joining us today. If our listeners want to know more about you, where can they find you? Yes. So there's two places you can find me. If you're interested to, you know, getting started in small single family real estate, small multifamily real estate, or just, you know, getting your financial roadmap written out and so you can actually proceed forward, you can find me at ashwealth.com, A-S-H-W-E-A-L-T-H dot com. And if you're interested in, you know, investing in larger projects, uh, in syndication projects more passively, you can find me at goodegginvestments.com. Perfect. Thank you so much, Whitney, for all of the knowledge that you gave us today. Now you're putting light under my fire. We're going to be talking to my fiance about this and we're going to be, yeah, right on it. (laughs) Thank you so much, Whitney. I really appreciate you. Oh, thank you so much. It was such a pleasure. I hope you enjoyed this interview with Whitney. Make sure to visit theoffbeatlife.com. Again, that's theoffbeatlife.com to get more remote work inspiration. Hey friend, have you been wanting to start a podcast? I know it can be overwhelming in the beginning. Believe me, I have been there. Lucky for you, we have created a new site called howtocreatepodcast.com that shares a ton of freebies that can help you get started. From launching, growing, to monetizing, we share it all in one place. Visit howtocreatepodcast.com for more information. Hey listeners, thank you for listening to this episode and I'm so thankful for your support. I would love to hear your thoughts on this episode and get suggestions on guests, topics we can discuss, and so much more. Feel free to reach out at hello at theoffbeatlife.com and let me know what you'd like to hear. If you like the show, don't forget to give us some love and review on iTunes. Thank you again for being a part of this journey, and I can't wait to hear how your location-independent story will unfold.